This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, this morning I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this, do you have any friends? You say, well, of course I have friends. Well, one person has said this, and I think quite rightly. A friend is someone you can rely on when you are going through difficult times. Maybe you've gone through some difficult times yourself and you've experienced the kind of friendship that is born out of the adversity that you're experiencing. A number of years ago, um, God, by his providence, made it very, very clear that I needed to resign from a church that I loved, that I was pastoring, and it was an incredibly difficult time for me and for my family. But in the midst of all that, we had countless people that contacted us that were praying for us. And they, they said, how can we help you during this time? There was one family that, that paid for us to get away for a few days just so that we could pause as a family and think through things and just get a break from what was going on. Many people uh, would give us financial help in the months that came. We would go out to the mailbox and there would be a check meeting a need that we had because we didn't have any income coming in. And, and we also just got cards and phone calls and emails to encourage us. I even had pastor friends that were calling us on a regular basis just to encourage us and say, Rod, stick with it. Stay in there. God is at work here. I had a a brother in Bolivia, our partner there in in Santa Cruz, and and he said, Rod, just come down for a month and just, just be here and be refreshed. And you know, that's exactly what we needed during that time. We needed the help and the support of those who were our friends, those who knew us. And it was an amazing thing to go through, although I don't want to go through it again, but it was an amazing thing to see how God's people and our friends came to our aid during that time. And friends, I want that to be a backdrop to what we see in the text before us today. Because what we have in the last part of 2 Timothy 4 is just Paul listing a whole bunch of his friends. Did you catch that? So many names. Even Matt this morning is like, Rod, I'm not sure how to pronounce this one and and this one because there's a bunch of names there. And these are all strange people that maybe you don't even know. And they're not necessarily prominent in Scripture, but they meant something to Paul. And it gives us an awareness of of the the kind of person he was and the kind of relationships that he had. And so this passage, friends, is all about friends. Paul is anticipating his death, but in that anticipation of his death, he is also leaning on the connection that he has with his friends, friends that he had, uh, he, he had um, made during the course of ministry, friends that he had worked with. And so as he's there in chains awaiting the potential, at least what he's thinking of, his death, He is comforted by his reflection on these friends. So this morning, my proposition is this. Although Paul is lonely, suffering for the gospel and facing death, Paul is taking comfort in his faithful friends. Now, 2 Timothy is all about hardship. It's all about suffering. If you were just to to read through it, one of the things that you'd be hit by was all these words of suffering and endurance and hardship. and, And this is Paul's last letter, at least that we have. And certainly in that moment, it was an appeal to Timothy to, to do some things, to, to guard the gospel, to pass the baton, because he knew that his death was coming. 
And at this particular point in time, he's emphasizing and he's remembering the friends that he has. So just take a moment and remember those people who have been and who are impacting your life right now. Just consider who are those faithful friends that have worked along with you or faced trials with you or have prayed alongside you or have guided and counseled you through the years. There's a sense that Paul recognizes that he is not the center of the world when it comes to the ministry of the gospel. That his life and ministry is coming to an end and that ministry has to go on and it has to go on through whom? Through his faithful friends. And in particular, he's putting that mantle of responsibility on Timothy. And so this morning, uh, there are really three things that flow out of this passage I want to draw your attention to. First of all, I want you to notice the comfort of faithful friends. Paul has laid out to Timothy the need to not be ashamed and to guard the gospel. He's emphasized to him the need to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. I would say that is the melodic line or the theme of the book. He has charged Timothy to preach the word in a hostile context reminding him that it is the gospel in the scripture where he finds his power. And now he is reflecting on his own situation in chains, cold and desperate in a dungeon. He's awaiting his execution. And he's isolated and he's, he's lonely and he longs for some compassion. And so he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. There's four words that really mark out this section. Come, get, bring, and beware. And he says, first of all, to Timothy, come, do your best to come to me soon. And and that's not kind of like, hey, you know, when you can, if you can get here, if you can think about it, maybe it's an option on your way to some place. No, he's saying, listen, come. And just, just notice, if you want, in, in, the, in the text that we have before us here, verse 9, come to me soon. Verse 13, when you come. Verse 16, no one came. Verse 21, come before winter, he says. Now again, just some, some historical context, just the, the idea of needing to come before winter because there was a season of time that you would not get in a ship because it was really dangerous to travel. And so he's saying, don't wait till the spring. I need you here. I want you here. I want you to come before winter. And so coming was important for Paul. And he gives us now a reason why he's saying that. Notice that it says in verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So there have been some that have deserted, some who have actually been sent off for ministry by Paul, and the only person that is left is Luke. Let's just pause a little bit and think through who these men are. Demas, it says, has deserted me. I think Demas gets a really, really bad rap, personally. You may disagree with me. I would encourage you to think this through. What we're told here is that Demas has Uh, in love with this present world, has deserted me. It's not saying that Demas has turned away from the Lord necessarily. 
or that he's fallen into great sin. What it is saying is that the present world caught his attention, and he has left his role as an assistant to Paul, and he has gone to Thessalonica. We're not told exactly why or what. And if we're honest, I think we can also be caught up with the world. And not necessarily in this huge, massive, sinful way, but the world can draw us to make decisions that might take us away from the ministry of the gospel and making that uh, as much of a priority in our life. This is not saying he's gone, he's now, you know, he's now apostate. That's not what the Scripture says. So let's be a little bit careful as we think about Demas. Uh, notice also that Paul has sent some people out. Crescens went to Galatia. Why? For the, for the purpose of ministry under Paul's direction. Titus to Dalmatia. We know Titus was one of those guys that was sent out by Paul to minister, ultimately would minister there in Crete. And there's Tychicus, who's found in verse 12. He also went to Ephesus. And so Paul, there in Rome, in chains, is not just talking about Demas. He's also talking about his co-labors that he is sending out. Just think about that. Rather than just saying, stay with me, he's saying, go out and do ministry. (laughs) Go out and serve. The body of Christ needs you. Go out there and preach the word and be a vehicle for the gospel. And then, of course, it says that Luke is still with him. Luke has stayed. So Paul is lonely. He's isolated. And of those who are serving alongside of Paul, only Luke is present. And so Paul's longing for companionship, for friendship, for comfort, even for accountability from his friends, his ministry friends in particular. Now when it comes down to it, it's helpful for us to recognize that we typically view Paul as being this strong, larger-than-life kind of character in the Bible, right? I mean, if there's anyone who's strong and who's biblically right and who's firm and who's bold, it's Paul. And yet Paul is still a human being. He's still the kind of person who needs friends. He is a person who can struggle with sin. He needs that accountability, and he is lonely. I think you and I would be lonely, too, if we were in that situation. And I think our minds would be racing with all sorts of things, but in particular, at that point in time, our friends would mean a lot to us, and we'd be remembering things about our friends that would be important to us. You see, loneliness is not something that God intends for people. We're made for friendship. We're made to be together with other people. And just a a few thoughts here from the pages of Scripture. It says in Genesis 2 and verse 18, it is not good that a man should be what? Alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. See, marriage is an answer to aloneness. If you would uh, think about Psalm 68 and verse 6, it says there, God settles the solitary in a home. In other words, the, the family unit, the home environment, is a place where belonging takes place. It's the answer to aloneness. And yeah, again, I have to think about that ancient culture where typically the home was not some isolated home in a suburb. Typically, you had a family who started, and then generations came and lived in the same facility, and sometimes what they would do is they'd build other levels and other, other dwelling places for the extended family, and the, the, it was a greater family that gathered together, and so you were part of this, this big group, and you had responsibility. You were part of a functioning team, so to speak. You weren't alone. There was a togetherness going on there. 
And then certainly if you think about all the one another's in Scripture, we recognize that it is the church that is a place that provides this, this answer to man's aloneness. Now it's an answer, but it is still our responsibility as God's people to be seeking out those who are part of the church and make sure that we're drawing them in rather than just saying, okay, I'm glad they're here, but are they being drawn into the body? Are they being drawn in to, to experience that togetherness and to, to satisfy that, that loneliness they may be experiencing because the body of Christ is supposed to be a body knit together. And so there's this pursuit. And so Paul is, in his expression here, is just identifying the struggle that he is having that all Christians have, all people have, with loneliness and friendship and companionship. So are we welcoming people into our homes? Are we taking time to talk to those that are not part of our circle of friends? Are we looking to serve the lonely? You know, one of the things I think is a lost art in the church today is the ministry of hospitality. You say, well, I'm hospitable. My question to you would be this. Are you hospitable to the same people over and over and over again? Or are you thinking about being hospitable to people that maybe you haven't interacted with? It's easy to be hospitable with people that are your friends, I mean, your close friends. But what about drawing in from people that are outside of that network? and opening your home, or experiencing that hospitality, hospitality with them. So he says, come. Then he says, get. Look, if you would, as we continue on. Get Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And so why get Mark? Well, he says, because he's useful to me for ministry. And this is one of those classic passages where it's just packed with gospel reality, isn't it? When you think about what Paul is saying here at the end of his life, here's a man that Paul would not work with. There was something in the character of Mark and what what Paul was after as they went on the missionary journey that he was like, I'm digging my heels in. I'm not working with this guy. And so there's a sense in which now Paul, by his statement, is reminding us that the gospel is at work in the lives of God's people, even to reconcile them together so that... Not only can the person who is considered useless or not useful become useful, it reminds us that even those issues that we have with people, those times when we're in conflict with other people, those same very people can be, by God's grace and the gospel ministry at work in the whole process, end up being useful end up being close, friends, and companions. So here's an important principle for us to to hear in this text. The one who was useless is now useful for the gospel. Past failures don't dictate usability. People fail. Anyone here fit in that category? Let's be honest. Of course we do. They fail, but they don't have to be put on the shelf. The person who offended or slighted you can be your faithful co-laborer. A failure can be a close friend and a co-laborer. The gospel has power to both save us from our sins and to restore our relationships with one another. Don't limit the power of the gospel by not allowing it to shape your heart in the midst of conflict for the glory of God. If all God's people would say, we want to handle conflict in a way that honors you, Lord, 
things will change in the context of church. And here's Paul giving us an example of saying, Mark is now useful to me. And not only that, here I am in jail close to death, and one of the people that I want with me is this guy that I rejected. That's powerful stuff, friends. So come, get, bring. This is really intriguing. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Well, why? We're not told exactly why, but we can certainly imagine. We have to be careful here, but we can imagine. Why would he want a cloak? Well, probably because he wants to be warm. It's cold in a dungeon. I don't know about you. I've visited dungeons. I didn't do the let's spend the overnight thing there. I didn't want to do that. Um, I, I've, I've just visited, but usually they're damp and they're cold and they're, yeah, it's, it's not a great place to be. And the, and the coldness gets to your bones there. So I think this is an answer to his physical needs. And let's not blow by this. Paul, our, our great spiritual hero, suffers physically. He gets chilly. He longs to be warm. It is no badge of honor for Paul to say, well, I don't need a cloak. I'm spiritual. I'll be okay. I'm going to tough it out for the glory of God. When you can actually cover yourself with a cloak. It's perfectly spiritual to stay warm. All right, so some of you are like, okay, now I'm putting my jacket on because I'm a little cold. It's, it's okay. You're not here to impress anyone. It's okay. God cares about our physical needs. Listen to uh, this little uh, snippet from the life of William Tyndale in his letter um, to Vilvorde, a, a Belgium man. He's in prison, and um, he's translating the Bible into English. Listen to what he says. Wherefore, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from the cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for for this uh, which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. I mean, William Tyndale was a, a greatly used by God to translate the English Bible in that time, in that season of the era of the church. And yet, he's saying, you know what? My, my clothes are worn out. It would be nice if I was a little bit warmer. And there's a Paul connection, but he says, not only the cloak, but also bring the Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew Bible. So that moves us to the next part there. Not just the cloak, but also the books and the parchment. There's a need for spiritual and intellectual uh, needs to be satisfied here. I mean, Paul loves the Word of God, and he loves the writings about the Word of God. So he's talking about the Old Testament, and certainly maybe the church creeds and other things like that. Again, um, John Stott, who's a pastor who's now with the Lord, who was serving in London, says this, when our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothing. When our mind is bored, we need books. To admit this is not unspiritual, it is human. These are natural needs of mortal men and women. So he says, come, get, bring. And then he says, beware. 
Let's read verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The, the implication there in the Greek is that he informed on Paul to the authorities that resulted in his imprisonment. So Alexander is someone who is not to be trusted, who is not to be, you know, don't, don't be drawn in, and that's what he gets into next. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now let's just put this together. Timothy, come, but beware of Alexander the coppersmith. <laughs> I want you to Come. But it's going to be a dangerous thing for you to come. And as I'm reading this, you know, I'm thinking, okay, Paul is concerned about you know, Timothy coming so he'll bring great comfort, but he's also saying you will be in great danger. Now, I've, I've again, done ministry in different parts of the world, and when I've mentioned that to some people, um, they're like, you know, don't you, aren't you afraid? And been to like Russia, and like, aren't you afraid that you're an American citizen and you're in Russia and how they're going to treat you and what they're going to say? And uh, isn't it dangerous? Aren't there problems there? And certainly, safety and health are concerns. But if, if that would stop us all the time, Timothy wouldn't go to Rome. Paul's saying, Come, but he's saying it's going to be a dangerous thing. And friends, sometimes ministering the word is a dangerous thing. Now, we, we're okay. Missionaries, they, they, can, they can go and, and face the dangers, but no, we don't want to do that. So I'm not going to let my teenager go on this missions trip to, I don't know, Kansas or wherever it might be, because they're going to be away from me, and it might be dangerous, and they might get stung by something, and, you know, listen, there, there's a reasonableness, but ministry requires that we take some, some risks for the glory of God. Again, wisdom needs to come to bear, but... I think if most of us were around and, and you know, Timothy was our son and Paul's writing this, we would say, you're not going there because Alexander the coppersmith is there. And Timothy would be saying, like, I said, okay, I'll get by him. It's no problem. I, I know how to get around these things. So I, oh, so you think you're big enough, do you? You, know, you get into this argument. Listen, ministry sometimes is risky. And Paul is saying, come, but understand there's going to be a danger. So be aware of that. Now, Paul knows what it's like. I mean, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And we're okay with Paul's suffering. And we're maybe okay with pastors in other countries suffering. Well, we don't want to suffer. And so Paul is saying, come, Timothy. And by the way, when you come, know that you're likely going to share in suffering. In fact, I want you to realize that sharing in suffering is a good thing. That kind of goes against our grain, doesn't it? So what is Paul doing in these verses? He's gathering pastors together in Rome. Paul, Timothy, Mark, Luke, the books and the parchment. It all sounds like a summit meeting on the furthering of the church. You might call it together for the gospel, right? I mean, it's just, this is what's happened. This is, this is, these are the leaders of the church at that particular point in time that he's saying, come, and we're going to have this summit meeting in the prison. Why? To strengthen one another, to establish sound doctrine, to strategize about church ministry, to comfort Paul in his final days. What would you say if you were writing a letter knowing that you were soon to be executed, who would you write that letter to? 
Why would you write that letter? What would you say? How would you say it? What would be important to you at that particular point in time? Paul's getting to the end of his letter here, and he's saying, I want my friends around me. These friends are important to me. So we move from the, the, the comfort of faithful friends to the comfort of a faithful God. So having taken the time to list off all these men who are his co-laborers in ministry, Paul states the present reality of his suffering. First of all, he's standing alone. Notice what verse 16 says. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So the, the custom in that day was when you went in to see Judge Judy, you would bring, you would bring someone with you that would stand there to, to vouch for you, vouch for your character, vouch for the fact of, of you know, the kind of person you were. So when Paul comes and stands before the, the magistrate, he's saying, there was no one who was willing to stand with me in my trial, to identify with me even, to support me and my character and my purpose and the things that I've done. No one was willing to do that. I was alone. You have to say, well, why didn't people come? Why didn't they stand by him? I mean, Luke was there. Where was Luke during this time? Luke deserted Paul, just like Demas, right? No. Notice what what we're told. Well, we're not told specifically why they didn't come and stand. But I think we can read a little bit between the lines, but we want to be careful there. But I, I want to point and draw your attention to what Paul says after having declared that no one stood by him. He says, may it not be charged against them. And just ponder that. See, Paul is not bitter. Paul is an understanding and gracious pastor to the end. He graciously restores Mark so he can be useful. He pleaded with Philemon to restore Onesimus as useful. Even when his faithful co-laborers are weak, Paul is gracious, forgiving, and understanding. Could the same thing be said about you, your character, and your attitude about those who are around you? Are you holding a grudge against someone because they didn't come to your aid when you needed it? They should have known. They should have been there. I was expecting them. They're not really my friends. Are you angry at someone because they failed to do something that was important to you? What can you learn from Paul that would help you as you're thinking about those people? He was standing alone, but I I think his standing alone and his statement of standing alone here is really a a backdrop to help us understand who was actually standing with him during that time. Notice as we read on verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I mean, who is our most faithful friend? I mean, who will not leave us? Who will not forsake us? Now, something similar happened to Paul in Acts 23. You might want to turn there and just read with me verses 10 and following. Paul remembers 
I'm sure these times in his life and ministry. Acts 23.10 says this. We'll just read it through verse 11. And when the dissension, there was a dissension between the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So uh, the, the following night it says, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul was very aware that the Lord was standing with him. Paul is motivated to endure because of his assurance that the Lord's working through his suffering to bring about the gospel to others. So there's a, there's a functioning paradigm for Paul's ministry philosophy here. It's this, suffering for the gospel is the means to proclaiming the gospel. He understands that. And so he is not afraid of suffering because he recognizes, yes, there might be people who are not with me, but God is. And the fact that I know that God is with me, God is working through me, I am imperfect. I might say some things that aren't exactly accurate, but God is with me, and he's going to be ministering the gospel through me through that suffering. And notice as he continues on, he tells us that God had rescued him from the lion's mouth. This was him reflecting on on life and ministry. This expression, rescuing from the lion's mouth, is is really a word or an expression that describes being rescued from extreme danger. Paul had been in very difficult situations. They wanted to kill him at times, and yet God had rescued him in life. And that, that remembrance of how God delivered him is now fueling him to stand there and saying, the Lord is with me, and to take joy in even his difficult circumstances. But Paul also understood that rescue didn't necessarily limit itself to being rescued from death. It was also a rescue in death. Notice what it says here, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now just think about this. And this is a worldview. This is the way that Paul is looking at life. Yeah, God has rescued me in life, and it's his choice to rescue me in life or to rescue me into heaven. What's it going to be? Now, friends, if that were our paradigm, we might approach things a little differently. That doesn't mean be foolish. It doesn't mean jump off a skyscraper and say, the Lord's going to rescue me or I'm going to die. Probably you're going to die. This is not foolishness. But Paul is going into places and he's going into synagogues and he's going into cities and he's proclaiming the gospel and sometimes the people don't like it. Now maybe down here in Texas, if you're you know, opening the gospel and sharing the gospel, people are like, hey, way to go, man, that's great. It's not like that in California. It's a little different. You're definitely the minority and people don't like you to say anything. Even quote scriptures like, ugh. And so there's, there can be this oppression really fast, but Paul had as his paradigm this awareness that God 
would either rescue him from death or in death rescue him into heaven. And it would all be by God's timing. (laughs) So you and I are completely in God's hands. We're in his care. And what he's called us to, we do. And we do it recognizing that either he's going to rescue us in life or we're going to be called home. And friends, the choice might say it's not a good one. I'd rather stay alive. Well, God may have other plans for you. And to be rescued into heaven is a wonderful entrance. (laughs) If we understand how Scripture describes what it means to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. See, God rescues us from the bondage of our sin through the gospel. That's our salvation. He takes us from darkness into light, from bondage to freedom, from blindness to 2020 vision. He, he rescues us from danger and persecution in the, the process of our sanctification. And he uses our suffering and, and trials and our good times as a means by which he is disseminating the gospel through us, either by how we handle the situation or the, the, the promises or the truths that we're holding on to so that when people ask us or they, they observe and they hear, how is it you face that? We're pointing to the Savior. We're pointing to the gospel. We're pointing to a God that we believe is completely and totally sovereign and in control of the affairs of man. And he rescues us from this earth and plants our feet in heaven, and that is our glorification. And then that, that, friends, is the hope that we long for. But I'll say this, I hope that is the hope that we long for. Because I think even believers can get so caught up with this world would say, you know what, I don't know if I really want to be in heaven. I'd rather be with my family right now. And I understand the tension there. There's a human side of that. But do we really long for heaven? I mean, is it really our hope? Do we have that confidence that if God is going to rescue us from this life, that he's rescuing us into heaven? That worldview, that certainty, changes how we approach life and ministry. The comfort of faithful friends, the comfort of a faithful God. Notice now the comfort of a faithful church. Paul often ends his letters with greetings to faithful servants in various churches, in various places Paul had ministered. And I just want you to note, as as we go through this list here, the people that he mentions, Priscilla and Aquila. They were a, 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 a tag team couple that ministered the gospel. They were great friends of him in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Rome, and now back in Ephesus again. Then there's Onesiphorus' household. So we're talking about a family. We're talking about all those who lived under the household. He's saying, he's saying it's like well, we have some friends in Bolivia. I've mentioned them before. And in our church, we call them the Mojica household. They're, we go to their home, and they're constantly having people come and stay. And it's like a household that just refreshes and encourages. And that's, that's how Onesiphorus and, and his household helped um, Paul. Just jump back to 2 Timothy 1 and 16 through 18. He's already referred to this. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me 
earnestly and found me. He must have gotten by Alexander the coppersmith, right? May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. See, Paul is remembering these people who had, who had been gracious to him, who had, who had labored with him. And then there's Erastus. He, he appears to be one of Timothy's peers who is now at Corinth. Trophimus, another of Paul's missionary companions whom Paul left in Miletus due to illness. Don't you love the, the rawness of that? He says, well, he, you know, Trophimus, he's, he, he, I had to leave him because he was sick. <laughs> Ministering for the Lord is not bed of roses, Right? Missionaries get sick. Pastors struggle. These things happen. Life is, is life because God is working through imperfect vessels. Then this Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. This is the only reference to these believers in all of Scripture. I would love to know what they did. Because if Paul's mentioning them, they had an impact on his life. They, they were an important part of the package of ministry. Now, can you see the importance of a passage like this? It tells us that the gospel ministry wasn't left to the apostles alone. It took ordinary, run-of-the-mill people to see it through. Now, don't don't think of that as a put-down. If it it weren't for just ordinary, run-of-the-mill people, the church wouldn't exist. That is who we all are. I've not written any books I'm not some famous pastor. I'm just a guy grinding it out for the glory of God, wanting to be a faithful expositor who smells like sheep. You think through that one, right? That's all, that's all I want to be. But that's the kind of people God uses. He uses people who think they're really not worth much and don't have much to offer. That's the kind of person he works through because they're committed to humbling themselves to a God who works through that kind of person. That's the church. That's who we are. Some pray, some accompany others on journeys, some become pastors and teachers, some become Sunday school workers, some, some would support financially, some are there to refresh pastors or travelers on their journey, exercising hospitality. Some would be key disciplers in places that the apostle uh, Paul or other apostles had been. Some were used to pass messages along to deliver packages. Others would serve. See, God uses all of his people, using all of their gifts to accomplish the furthering of his gospel. We all work together with those various gifts to accomplish his purposes. Yes, Paul is an apostle. Yes, I'm a pastor, but I am not the church. I'm exercising my gift of pastor-teacher in the context of Gateway Bible Church. I am nothing except for a faithful, hopefully faithful human being who loves the Lord, who is gifted in a certain capacity, trying to work out the church with other people who are gifted. Notice how Paul greets the body of Christ in the following letters. These are just the, the ends of a number of letters. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 26, it says this, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians 4, 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. 
We could just go on and on. Paul loved the people he ministered to. He loved the people he was entrusting ministry to. And he, he, was, he was not afraid to share that. He was not afraid to express his love for those people. So it's clear that Paul loved his faithful co-workers. He loved his faithful Savior. He loved his faithful but imperfect church. And so he concludes with these precious words. The Lord be with your spirit, speaking to Timothy. And grace be with you, speaking to the church. And we know that because the you in that last part, if you have an ESV, you'll see there's a little number there. It's a you that is plural. See, when Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, he's not just writing it to Timothy. He's writing it to Timothy knowing that this letter is going to be read from uh, because it's from the Apostle Paul, and the church is going to read it too. And so he's not only giving Timothy instructions, but by those instructions, he's encouraging and strengthening the church to know what they are to do and, and what Timothy has been called to do. And so when he's sending this letter, he's ending it here with an expression of love and, and, and joy and, and, um, and urgency on them. Timothy, the Lord be with you and your spirit, and then to the church, grace be with you, undeserving grace to you. This is what you need. Now, friends, this is just a beautiful, beautiful letter written by the key leader of the church to those who are his laborers, in particular Timothy, to carry on the ministry of the gospel as he departs, as he is taken home, as God rescues him. And he's pleading with them to carry on the ministry. But while he's there in jail, in chains, he's thinking about those friends. Those friends who have been faithful to him and with him in serving the Lord. He's thinking about his faithful God. He's thinking about his faithful church. If you were in that situation, what would you be thinking about? What would concern you? Would you be concerned with the things that you have in this world? I don't see anywhere here, you know, Paul is concerned about maybe a, you know, a donkey, a dog, certainly no house, no dwelling place, no vehicle, no cabin, no vacations. He's thinking about his friends. He's thinking about those who are important to God. He has his priorities right. A couple of concluding thoughts here. These are ways just to kind of stir up what we've looked at already and just press it home a little bit. Number one, are you purposeful in cultivating your friendships? I would want our time this morning to help you to rethink what it is that you're doing when, when we're talking about building relationships and building friendships. Are you building that relationship with your elders and with their wives? I mean, are you being purposeful about that? Elders, turning that around, are you purposeful to, to take those that are under your care and build relationships with them so that, so that you're knowing them and that there's this love and this community going on in those, those people that you are responsible for? 
Are you building those relationships with those peers in your home groups or your Bible study? Are you, are you just attending and, and participating? Or are you saying, God, you've placed us here to network and have these relationships with these people because when they are going through trial, that means that I have a responsibility to them. And when I go through a trial or difficulty that they, because they're part of the body of Christ, are going to come by my side. Why? Not just out of duty, but because of love, because of friendship, because of, of ministry together. And just greater, as, you, as you, you take it out with the body, is there a purposeful desire to cultivate these kinds of deep relationships with those around you? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time, and it happens through much prayer. It happens through adversity. It happens through being honest and transparent with each other with the things that you're facing and struggling. And it comes as a result of of ministry being done for you and you doing ministry for others. Are you purposeful in cultivating your friendship? Secondly, are there any Demas' remarks that you can still pursue? And just ponder that people that you know who've been a part of the body of Christ, who've drifted away, the world in in, in whatever way has drawn them away from being a part of the church. Not necessarily they're unsaved, but they're maybe not as active. And, And there might be a little tension because you were in a relationship with them in the context of the church and, and now you're not and so there's this kind of like, well, I don't know if I should talk to them and they're kind of walking in disobedience. You can still love them. You can still reach out to them. You can still pursue them. They're there. And you know what? They're probably lonely. Even if they are in sin, they're probably still lonely. Because there is no kind of real friendship unless you are having friends that are rooted in the gospel and there's this community that flows out of that. I just want to encourage you and challenge you to, to not just say, well, you know what, I'm just going to leave them be. And notice I say Demas's or Mark's, people that maybe you've disagreed with, that are serving the Lord, maybe you've had an argument with. If you look at Matthew 18, principles of what we call church discipline, I love to call it more restoration. It's biblical love at work. What is the goal of all that? To restore your brother. And you know what happens in my experience when I've gone through the process of exercising church discipline with a particular individual? If that person is receptive of God's truth, being born or even identifying something that I have done that has contributed or whatever, you end up actually developing a relationship together because you're being vulnerable with each other. You're opening up. You're saying, you know what? Yes, this is, this is the sin that you've committed. And they say, well, you know what? Well, how come you didn't come along and help me in this? And then you start talking about the whole thing. You're like, you know, I'm so sorry. And you end up being knit together. Why? Because you've, you've taken life and ministry to a level that is far deeper than superficiality. There's a mark in your life. Don't just leave him be. Follow Paul's example and and move that person from the place of not being useful to being useful. Do your part. Pursue that person. Seek to restore that relationship because those relationships matter. And finally, 
Do you have Paul's worldview? Trusting God that he will rescue you in life if it is his will and trusting certainly that God will rescue you in death. Friends, these are paradigms. These are worldviews. These are frameworks that we are to have if we are to believe what God says in his word. Paul loved people. He loved God's truth. He loved his God, but he was imperfect in all of that. And yet, at the end of his life, what matters to him are those friends and God and the ongoing ministry of the gospel. That should tell us something about what our priority should be. Think about that. Consider what he has to say. Take this and, and ponder it on your own, in your own heart, in your own relationships, in your own relationship with God, in your own activity interacting with the gospel. What are your priorities? That was his worldview, and I would encourage you to make it your worldview too. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I am humble to even talk about Paul in this way. I am undeserving of the kind of friends that I have as a result of ministry, as a result of of, of life. But Lord, most of all, I am humbled by the fact that you have extended your love toward me and that you have given me life and life abundantly. That I am counted and considered one of your children, part of your family that you pursued the cross and took upon yourself the, the, the weight of the suffering of the wrath of the Father on my account? Why would you do that, Lord? There is nothing that I deserve. And yet, Lord, you did. And Lord, it humbles me, but it also makes me thankful. It also brings me joy. It wants me to, it, it, it helps me, Lord, to burst forth into praise and to, to celebrate, Lord, what, what only you could do. Because without you, I would not come running to you. I would be left in my sin. I would not be rescued. Lord, I just pray for Baptist Church of the Redeemer, Lord, that you would give them a sense of Paul's worldview, a sense of the importance of relationships that are rooted in the gospel, a sense of of recognizing that the Lord is always with us in spite of what other people may do, and to have the kind of graciousness that Paul had to those who maybe didn't respond in a way that, humanly speaking, we would have expected. Lord, I desire that for my church. It is your church. This is your church, Lord. May all of your people seek to honor you, to glorify you with the truth that you have revealed. May it feed our souls and continue to do so and strengthen us, Lord. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.